Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, this is pretty exciting. Our guest this week is Tim Finn. I can't believe this happened. I mean, I think pretty much everybody know, knows Tim Finn's story. He's one of the founding members of Split Ends, one of the most important new wave bands. I guess that's what they became. They started out almost as Prague, but they became one of the most important new wave bands ever, especially down under. But of course, everywhere else with the way they looked, the way they sounded, the songs they put out there, including this one right here, one of Tim's, Six Months in a Leaky Boat. It furthered the cause of New Wave and expanded boundaries, artistic boundaries for everybody everywhere. So then around the beginning of the 80s, Tim goes solo, and he's basically been solo ever since. Although, of course, there are many, many collaborations along the way. He joins Credit House for a little while. He and Neil also put out a couple of uh, Finn Brothers albums along the way and he continues to work with a lot of people from his past There, he recently put out a new album with Split Enzer Eddie Rayner called Forensics and that's Forens with a Z of course just like Split Ends it's called Shapes and Echoes easily one of the best albums of the year easily and to me it sounds very influenced by French pop I say that because Tim has been on what I think is kind of a multicultural winning streak here Last year, he put out an album with another frequent collaborator, Phil Manzanera from Roxy Music, called Caught in by the Heart, which is also very Spanish-influenced. Everything Tim has been touching for like 15 years now is gold. I mean, he was great before that, but it just feels like the last 15 years or so, he's been taking a lot of artistic challenges, a lot of risks, and they're all paying off. He's incredible at what he does. Now, I have copies of Shapes and Echoes to give away, tons of them, and I'll tell you about that at the very end. One thing to keep note of in this conversation. So, other than the very first question I ask him, we sort of start at the most recent stuff and work our way backwards. What's unfortunate is that he had to cut it a little bit short. So, just as we're sort of starting to get into the 80s and split ends, that's when Tim had to go. So if you come away from this feeling like I didn't get enough split ends or I didn't get to talk about before and after or his solo albums or whatever, I feel that way too. Unfortunately, we ran out of time. But I I mean, this is the conversation I have always wanted to have with one of my favorite songwriters ever. And I hope you guys feel this way too. I tried to cover everything, but really and truly check out everything he's done for the last few years. It's amazing. Okay. Especially Shapes and Echoes. And this, this episode is jam packed with music. Tons of it. Cause I want you to hear a little bit of everything. He called me from his home in Auckland. So first and foremost, uh, Tim, before we get into everything there is to talk about, I have to go back to the first moment that I became aware of Tim Finn. And it was hearing growing pains in the movie 16 Candles. That was my first awakening to Tim Finn. Thank you. 
I know this is an odd question, but those John Hughes movies from the 80s are responsible for basically building my preference in music, my taste. And I wonder if there's any story about how you got picked to be in that movie. I'm sorry, there isn't. I mean, it just That's happened. I yeah, I really had no idea how, you know, um, and I think it was, yeah, there's a little bit in the movie, which we've watched his movies here with our, with our two kids um, and really enjoyed them. And we always look forward to that mm-hmm. moment. I don't think it ended up on the soundtrack album. I'm not sure I don't know why. if there even was one. I think it was like an EP or something like that. His the soundtracks yeah. to his movies became a bigger deal later. But yeah, yeah. that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and the, I mean those days everything was so mysterious. I mean there was no internet. There was no you couldn't follow up on things and find out anything. You know, so yes, <laughs> it was, I know. It was one of those. Yeah, yeah. I just have always wondered. I mean, it's a, it's. I think that was his first big movie like that. But after the fact generation as the generations go we know that being selected to be on a soundtrack like that is kind of a huge honor he was a real tastemaker at that time for a lot of us of a certain age and so being picked to be on there and hearing that song in the background it was yeah. formative for me that was what kicked yeah. it off well that's so, great to know thank yeah, you yeah it worked great okay <laughs> so let's talk about forensics because to my mind and i'm going to ask you about a few of these things you've been on like a hell of a winning streak for about 15 years now, everything <laughs> you're doing is so interesting and so good and so different. And this is just one more piece of that puzzle. What was it about working together with Eddie and getting with Phil Manzanera and making this album that why was now the time for this? Well, I don't really know. I mean, the, the, you know, it goes back to 1976 when, yeah. when Phil Manzanera was producing Split Ends in London. We were making our Second Thoughts album. And, um, you know, Bob Marley was down there in the basement making uh, Exodus at the time. Yeah. And Brian Eno wandered in. He was an ex-bandmate of yeah. Phil's. Um, they'd been in Roxy Music together. Um, I was out in the studio itself, so I didn't get to meet him. Um, but at the same time, he wasn't, you know, like he became much more known and much more of an icon as the decades rolled by. At that stage, he was he was a bandmate of Phil, Phil's and uh, interesting guy. And, and apparently he said something about this one section of the song Walking Down the Road that we were recording mm-hmm. and um, that he liked it. And, you know, that's what sort of stood out for him. And it kind of stayed in the back of my mind because being a minimalist, you know, he would have probably just chosen that piece and done that for three or four minutes. And that would have been incomprehensible to us because we were dyed-in-the-wool maximalists. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, every part of the song was a stepping stone to the next part. And we didn't think of them as discrete entities, really. So it's just a different way of looking at music. But, you know, it stayed in my mind. And 47 years later, I said to Eddie, why don't we try uh, writing a new song over that section? So mm-hmm. it just was the timing was right. I mean, I, I've been listening to some of the old stuff and thinking about some of that, that era. I... Split Ends is known for many people as an 80s band. And, and it's true to say that most people came on board around 1980. Um, but the whole of the 70s, like from 72 till 80, um, were very important years for, for us. And I, I, I'm in a way more fascinated now by the, those early years mm. than in the later years. We did so many shows and, you know, Noel Crombie was was starting to to weave his magic with, with, our, with our clothes and, our, you know, he would give us haircuts and he was creating this kind of thing that became split ends an hour before showtime every night. And mm. we played so many shows. And 
we were way outside the times and, you know, we were a cult band, but yeah. I look back on those days very, very fondly. And so I don't know, it just came into my head. So Eddie sent me back a kind of, he looped it up and, and, and created this kind of structure, loose structure for it. And I, I sang, I came up with a new melody and, and I sort of re, reworked the lyrics and created a new kind of lyric. And we loved it, we both loved it. And we sort of went from there. We thought, let's keep going, you know. And, The idea of using those little jewel-like moments from from your own catalogue is, I think, you know, well, I don't know if anybody else has tried that, but for me it was really interesting because you had me and Eddie and you also had this other thing, which was the band and, and it was the 70s. And so it, it brought up a lot of emotions, a lot of poignancy and pathos and, you know, just we just ran with it. It was great. Yeah. That's one of the things I find really interesting about the project. I mean, there's many, but... In uh, in going back, in, when you read up about the origins of a lot of these songs, you find out that they're based on, like you said, I think you called them a shade or a sh- or a an echo or something. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah, an echo of an old end split end song. Like for instance, chances are. That calls back to classic split ends, and you've built a new song over it. Yeah, Did you right. need? Well, I mean, was the was the inspiration of pulling back, going back forty seven years to those days? That's what kind of inspired this whole project. Is like, let's put a new spin on it. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, like any songwriter, um, I'm most excited about you know the one I wrote yesterday or, or, right. or this morning. You know, so it's not like. I don't know. It's it's a way of finding new songs, and and mm-hmm. the, the old stuff was giving us clues, you know. Which is, mm-hmm. I guess, partly why we called it forensics. Was mm-hmm. you know, it was a kind of a forensic examination of of your own musical history, mm-hmm. and then you know, right, creating something entirely new with it. Mm-hmm. I think in art history they have this expression. They have this word palimpsest, and it means like twice used, 
you know, canvas or whatever, like mm-hmm. a painting that's done over another painting. And I think it's sort of like that. So the old stuff kind of seeps through and there are little clues mm-hmm. everywhere. Like Eddie might just be playing a little quiet keyboard line in one section of the song and you realise, you know, Spillian's fans should be able to realise that yeah. that is actually referencing, you know, mm-hmm. song A or song B or song whatever. And mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of um, enjoyment for people to just like, first of all, ex- listen to it as a new body of work and then kind of enjoy, you know, some of those little signposts yes. and where they're playing. Yeah. I love it. Um, I wanted to ask you specifically about two of my favourite songs on the album. One of them is I Spy. reason I say that is because Phil's guitar mixed with, I'm guessing, whatever Eddie's doing on those synths, it comes together so beautifully. I don't believe that's one of the songs that harkens back to a split end song, but it's uh, magical. What What's the story of I Spy? Uh, yeah. And actually that's, um, I'm not sure that's even Phil playing guitar on that. That might I wasn't be really, I wasn't sure. Okay. Yeah. I think Eddie's got a band that he jams with. And so he put some of those jams kind of edited them into, into song shape and then sent them to me uh, as instrumentals. Mm. And I kind of made up uh, tunes and words to go with it. So, you know, that one to me had that kind of slight kind of 60s spy, mm-hmm. spy movie feeling. And mm-hmm. I guess I just started jamming on I spy and, you know, putting in this, I mean, cause the, the thing is we are spying on each other now all the time and mm-hmm. that's the culture we live in. And I've been reading this Icelandic novel, it's called The Swan, and in it um, they talk about, the writer talks about how in Iceland and very remote parts of Iceland, everybody has a telescope and they're always spying on each other because they might be a whole mountain away or they could be, you know, separated by these huge landscapes. <laughs> They've got their little, mm-hmm. uh, little telescope out. So I kind of like that. It's a, it's, mm-hmm. it's a, you know, it spoke to me about um, as an image of what we're all doing now, but in a high tech way, you know. Right on. And I, yeah, and I just followed that and jammed those words. Like it's quite, it 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 moves out over other areas, but that's that was the start of it for me. So when yeah. you get, are you get, or is, or is Eddie really the kind of the mastermind behind? What's the name of Double Life? Is that the name of Double his? Yeah. Yes. Is, yeah. So he and Double Life are creating the music beds, the sound beds, and he's sending them to you to just put vocals over it? Or is it more collaborative than that? Well, the split ends ones were completely uh, collaborative. In fact, mm. a lot of them, I would come up with a very rough kind of idea of a loop of a section 
but not all of them. So we were toing and froing, and mm-hmm. you know, I would I would give Eddie an idea, like I'd sing a melody and and maybe play some synth chords, and then he'd completely mm-hmm. redo it and make it sound magical. And so, mm-hmm. you know, that was truly collaborative. These other ones, they were sort of collaborative after the event because he had already done these jams mm-hmm. and cut them up into instrumentals. And he just because we were on such a roll with the end stuff, I guess he thought, well, I'll see what Tim comes up with for these. So you know, I didn't I didn't change the harmony, the chords. The bass lines, whatever, but I but I put a melody on there that wasn't there and I wrote words, okay. you know, so made them into songs, I guess. Yeah. The other one I wanted to ask you about, um, which is probably my favorite song in the album, is Unlikely Friend. I didn't know who Megan Washington was. She is new to me, but her voice with yours on a song like that, talk about magic. Yeah. So you guys go, you're friends, right? She, You've collaborated with yeah. her on other things. Yeah, we, we, she toured with me. Uh, I didn't know her at all until she came out on the road for a few shows um, and supported me on an Australian leg of a tour. And we, we hit it off straight away. I really like her as an artist. I mean, in fact, after the first show, we invited her up with us and she started playing keyboards with us and singing. Um, you know, and, we, and we wrote a song together for an album of mine called The View Is Worth The Climb mm-hmm. that I made with Jakia King. Uh, great album and, and great song. She, thank you very much. She, yes. she co-wrote uh, the title track, in, in mm-hmm. fact, with me. So there's a lot of, you know, kind of uh, synergy between us. And and I, Eddie and I both sort of felt that the song would benefit from a harmony. Mm-hmm. And it, and she just did it. I mean, she just nailed it so beautifully. You know, she lives yes. over in Brisbane, um, Brisbane, Australia. So, mm-hmm. you know, we were sending files and boom, there it was. Perfect. Wow. Yeah. Maybe this is a stretch. You tell me. But when I listen to this album, it reminds me of someone like Serge Gainsbourg. And I'm not just saying that because of Premier Foie being in French. There's a French pop feel to this. 
And when I listened to Caught by the Heart, the last album you did with Phil, and there's a Latin feel in that one. Um, yeah. So strong. I love it. Those two things mixed with the fact that I keep hearing that you are heavily involved with like writing musicals is, are they all, are these things all connected? I mean, I was talking about the winning streak you've been on is your, is your, I don't know, grand view just becoming more global right now. What's, what's inspiring you? Yeah, well, I, I've always been interested in musicals, um, uh, you know, because you, they walk such a fine line. I mean, they can be so naff. And they mm. could be so brilliant, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, I saw Sweeney Todd, for example, live in, on stage in America, and they Broadway on tour production. In the middle of the tour I was on, I just went down on a, on a quiet night off, and in Saint, it was in Saint Louis. Mm. And no, it was Louisville. Louisville, I'm sorry. Mm. And uh, there, there was this production going on in this huge cavernous space, and there, there was only half full. There's every reason why I should have remained, you know, been a bit detached and not really, really into it. But I was totally mesmerized. I mean, I'd seen musicals before, but that one re I realized, you know, Sondheim really, the bar is extremely high, you know, and if it, it's fine art. I mean, it's the highest of the highs. So mm -hmm. if you can aspire to something like that, um, that's got to be exciting and, and you know, very interesting and, and nuanced and layered. And, and But what's happened is because I've been writing for characters and narrative now for the last uh, 10 or 15 years, we've had a couple of productions in Australia. There's, there's actually a new one coming out in... Um, in Melbourne in June, um, we've adapted a Katsuo Ishiguro short story. Uh, he's one of my favorite writers. And, oh, wow. Uh, you know, it was just such an honor when he said he gave us his approval to, to, to adapt this short story as a stage musical. But, yeah, so I think I'd be What is it? What's it called, Tim? I want to make sure we know. It's called Come Rain or Come Shine. Okay. And it, it's part of it's. There's a book he wrote. Uh, there's, it's called Nocturnes, and I think there's five short stories in this collection, Nocturnes, and they're all about music. It's a mm. great, great collection. And, and you know, who knew that, that Ishiguro was funny? Because, you know, <laughs> as great as he is and as much as I love him, um, I never thought of him in, in that way. But uh, Come Rain or Come Shine, the story we've ad adapted is hilarious. Mm -hmm. And I started reading it. Um, I read it just as we're going into the pandemic. And um, it just it just was exactly what I needed. So, Mm. I, I got together with these people that I collaborate with in Australia, uh, director Simon Phillips and, and his wife, Carolyn Burns, 
Um, and we wrote this musical. So, yeah, but because I've been doing that for a while, it's really informed my songwriting. Like I can yeah. slip into character uh, and it's still me, but I, I can play it. Like, yeah. you know, not that these songs and forensics are music theatre songs, far from it, but, no. th- but there is some freedom in that way of writing that I think has now fed back into my album songwriting. Uh, yeah. You know, so is, and, but yeah. is writing, a, is singing or writing a song in French or in Spanish. See, that feels like a unique move for Tim Finn in my world. Does it not feel that way for you? Yeah, it does. I've never done that before. I, you know right. what? I think it was the start of, again, it was the sort of um, the pandemic thing where actually uh, Premier Foire, I wrote pre, uh, pre-COVID. So... Mm. That was more that um, we had been listening in the house and the family had been listening to a lot of Serge Gain's book. Mm-hmm. And uh, that definitely informed my attitude to wanting to try that. And I wrote a lyric in English and then I translated it and sang it. And, you know, that was, again, I was sort of playing with a character in that song, you know. Mm-hmm. And But it still felt like me, but it, it was a part of me that I'd never really um, performed before. But then the pandemic kicked in and... What happened for me was it was curious because, um, you know, people talk about globalization and all this and that, and, you know, it's a global village, but I've never felt that as strongly as I did at the start of this pandemic. I mean, yeah. we were getting photos, like really harrowing images were coming through from Spain and Italy in particular, but also France, the UK. And, you know, there was just this awareness of these places much more intensely than I'd ever felt before. Plus the fact that that Phil Manzanera, you know, grew up in Cuba and, you know, has a lot of Spanish-speaking friends and musicians he knows from Colombia and Chile and, you know, all over. So something about all of those things came together. And, I, you know, I don't think I would have done Spanish if I hadn't been working with Phil. Mm. Um, And uh, I made sure I checked everything with him and, you know, he tweaked and corrected a few things. But, yeah, basically it was was just a really liberating feeling, you know. I love it. Um, I love that song Malicone from Caught by the Heart. I mean, I love the whole album, but that song, and especially when his guitar playing kicks in and it's the two of you just at your best. The rippling waters in Havana Bay made us feel happy back in the day. After you, 
I love it. I love it. Yeah. Um, Now, you speaking about singing in character, that's interesting because prior to Forensics, my favorite Tim Finn solo album might have been The Conversation, which to me feels like you at your most vulnerable. And I don't always think of Tim Finn and vulnerability, that kind of vulnerability going together, not over the course of a whole album. There's a song here and there, and I'm going to ask you about more about that later. But that album felt so vulnerable to me and intimate. And I wonder, though, if if that's the inside of Tim Finn or that's the inside of a character that you're playing. There's vapor flowing like a bridal gown from the rocket ship that we're counting down. And love is leaving for the cold of space It's a mystery It's our saving grace Out of this world With you Searching for life I never knew Out of this world It's true There's no limit on the things we'll do Out of this world It's only when I look into your eyes Yeah, it's it's an interesting question. I mean, I I definitely, um, I had a clear idea that that's what I wanted to do. Like, Mm -hmm. I didn't just go into the album and going, you know, let's see what happens. Mm -hmm. It was like, I want to make this record uh, without a drummer, without a bass player, very like a little chamber group. I knew the guitarist that I've been working with a lot, Brett Adams. I knew I wanted him on it. I knew I wanted Eddie on the piano, etc. So it kind of... It went from there, and Miles Golding, a violin player, was in the very first lineup of Split Ends, um, and we, we we were heartbroken because he left pretty soon after the band started in 72, 73, um, to go and study classical music in England, and he became a very successful classical player, and we were kind of heartbroken. So it was really nice to, to finally get in the studio with Miles, and, uh, you know, that was a beautiful part of it for mm-hmm. me as well, you know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean... It was, yeah, it was a conscious thing of wanting to okay. do it that way. I mean, maybe I now maybe I now feel I can be that vulnerable and that intimate because I, I would put a lot of it actually down to um, to to my wife, Marie, because she uh, she you know, I've been with her now for twenty five years, and mm-hmm. she she has given me that kind of, you know that the courage in a, in a sense sure. to, to be that simple and and to be that approachable. you know whereas we're, we're talking about characters before, um you know, when you think of very early split ends, you know, that singing is very stylized. Very it's very so. character driven, yeah. Yeah. you know, compared to what I sound like just normally, like if I was mm-hmm. just sitting in a room singing around the piano and then suddenly you've got split ends and I'm, I'm putting on an accent and an attitude. And, mm-hmm. you know, so there's a part of me that loves playing character when I sing. And there's a part of me that just, just wants to sing like we, Neil and I used to when we were kids, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So I mentioned a second ago that I wanted to ask you about these these songs or these moments in your career where I feel like you've been especially dramatic. I, three songs come to mind. Maybe you can guess what I'm even going to say. I hope I never, 
edible flowers and all I ask are these three songs that are that are so powerfully dramatic and I'm wondering if how do you know when a song is maybe dripping with pathos but not drowning in it are you conscious of that as you're making those songs because those three songs specifically feel like of a piece and also sort of outliers compared to everything else Right. Yeah, no, that's interesting uh, to put those three together like that. I hadn't really thought of it in that way. Mm. You know, they each have, uh, they each come from from a situation, a, a, a feeling that was real and deep and kind of hard to explain at the same time. You know, I hope I never, lose, I've talked about this song before um, being, you know, about, about the loss of a friendship. Pretend that I'm not down I show it, I know it I've been a fool More than once, more than twice I'm gonna move to a new town Where the people are nice I hope I never I hope I never, I hope I never have to cry again. I still want to be my smile. Happiness is back in style. I hope I never, I hope I never have to see. Uh, you know, in particular with uh, with Phil Judd, who I started Split Ends with, and, and that friendship just went awry and went away. And, you know, it was really heartbreaking, I think, for both of us, but it was for me. And and at that time, I just I just had to sing it. And, you know, it has other meanings. I mean, a friend, just, a friend said to me once that, that he really liked that song because it's, it's, the lyric is so elliptical. Mm. And I, I didn't really quite know what he meant at first, mm. but I, I, I kind of get it, you know, because there's a there's a tender there's a tenderness and a yearning. But there's also this. I hope I never have to see you again, you know. Right. And you know, there's a similar thing in uh, another song of mine, "Stuff and Nonsense." You know, which, yes, you know, somebody heard me. Somebody heard me sing that once, and they said, oh, "I love it. It's so cruel."
<laughs> and I didn't, think, I didn't think of it as cruel. No, um, but so there's, yeah, there's those two sides, you know. And mm-hmm. edible flowers. Well, obviously Neil wrote the chorus to that, so that was like a perfect coming together of, you know, something that I had the verse and the mood of the verse. And then Neil just responded to that, and boom. happened really fast and until mm. and, and so you got the, the verse which is more yeah I guess philosophical and kind of downbeat and and um, recognizing impermanence and the passing of time and then Neil kind of takes it into a uh, you know he just fills it up with wonder and kind of mm-hmm. um, more of an uplift you know looking upwards mm-hmm. and that balance is really nice between yeah. us sometimes yeah um, and all I ask is 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 just something I actually you know, I had a one. I had that one line. All I ask is to live this, live each moment free from the last. I was saying that talking about to Neil when we were writing for the Woodface record, and uh, we wrote that song as we sang, as we did it. We wrote it like obviously it's a very simple lyric, so it's not like we were making up verses. Uh, you know, we were just singing that refrain and and, and just you know molding and ch- changing it a bit here and there. But yeah, and the music and everything came together. That's the only time that's ever happened between us. Where we, we said, oh, well, let's let's work on this, and then three minutes later we had it. You know. Yeah. Well, so I got to ask, I mean, talk about Woodface. Um, 
Where did Weather With You come from? Well, again, that was a really nice combination of things. Um, you know, I had I had that phrase uh, everywhere you go. You always take the weather with you. I had that written down somewhere, and uh, but that, I didn't realize that was going to be part of the song because we had this other song going that I I started strumming that E minor seventh chord to A seven, I know A nine or whatever it is, and and you know Neil picked up on that, and then he started jamming some lyrics. I had the first line, and he he came up with quite a lot of the other lyric. Apart from that chorus stuff about the weather, you know, and so, but we left it at, at being the first two, uh, the first day we worked on it, we didn't have the two, you know, we didn't, that chorus wasn't there. And then I went home and thought about it, thought, oh my God, that's going to be perfect. Came back the next day, played that to him, and that was how we had that song, you know. Mm. It's one of the greatest guitar riffs in history, if you ask me. And it's, <laughs> um, I, it really is. I mean, it's, it sure is, yes. Yes, I, I, it really I, is. Okay. And that, that chorus, that, what's that? You go. No, you go. Well, I was just going to say that chorus that you just said, right, that you wrote. I mean, these marriage, this marriage of magical moments coming together between the two of you. The song is just, it's eternal. It lives on forever and it deserves to because it's one of the best there is. What were you going to say? Thank you. No, I was just that guitar thing that Neil played. Um, yeah, that was so Neil. I mean, he, he does that sometimes and takes it to another level. I remember um, we did this We did this uh, Mojo event in London. Mojo magazine was having a kind of lunch, and Neil and I were invited to get up and sing a couple of songs. And we didn't realise at the time that, that that the room was going to be, you know, packed with icons, like Bowie was there, mm. Eric Clapton was there, and, you know, younger guys too, like the Gallagher brothers were there. And the reason I've mentioned it is because we played that song and then afterwards Liam Gallagher came up to us, you know, because he had the most front, I suppose. He just kind of swaggered up to us and he was miming the guitar line going, yeah, I like that one. <laughs> and he wasn't trying to sing to us. He was he was miming that guitar, you know. Yeah. And, because it's such a killer guitar line. Yes. Uh, Neil did that. You know, there's other songs of his, like on the Finn record, uh, that song Only Talking Sense.
Yes. Um, the, the guitar in that is just amazing. So it yeah. It is amazing. Um, yeah. Okay. So I want to, I got to, this is fun, Tim, boy, you're fulfilling some dreams here. I'm going to keep throwing a couple more songs at you. So again, going back to Woodface, There Goes God. What'll I tell him when it comes to me for absolution? Wouldn't you know it? Hope I don't make a bad decision. <laughs> it is so sarcastic and when you're talking about god going down the street in his tight pants with his sausage dog walking his yeah. side like what <laughs> i can intuit i can imagine what i think you're trying to say what are you actually trying to say with that song i really don't know and i don't think neil does either we've talked about this and we both are kind of semi-confused about that song really <laughs> uh, yeah in a good way you know like yeah. but that was that was neil's line about um the, you know, the, the sarcastic stuff that you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, and so you'd have to ask him, but um, okay. we were both in that zone at the time and we didn't question anything and we just kind of mm. blazed it down, you know, but um, afterwards we, we, you know, and, and we don't play it live that much either. Yeah. It's sort of, it could be borderline offensive to some people, but yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's cool. I remember reading, I think around that time that Neil had considered going into the priesthood or something like that. And, um, you know, I don't know, going, you know, the clergy or whatever. And so I always thought, boy, that's a ballsy song for a guy who just a few <laughs> years ago was thinking about becoming a priest or whatever. Well, you know, I think it was quite a few years prior. And I think uh, it was me. Maybe Neil did that as well. Cause he, you know, he did look up to me and maybe, but I remember saying to, um, to our mother once, you know, that I thought I might've had the calling and I, I was only seven years old. Or eight. So, you know, what did I know? Wow. Yeah, it was so, um, such a romantic thing in those days. Uh -huh. I mean, it's just so ripped apart and soiled sure. forever. But, yeah, you know, it is. It's a know, shame. It's just going on and on. The yeah. Um, no, okay. Anyway. So I have to, I have to ask, I saw Credit House on that tour in Wood, on Woodface in Cambridge at the Corn Exchange in the fall of 1991. And, um, I'm trying to remember, I think you had got just gone and I can't remember. Do we know why exactly you split at that time? If this is too personal uh, or touchy, you tell me. No, I mean, it's been well-documented in, in various forms over the years, you know, um, but I mean, to say, to reiterate, I mean, you know, Paul, it was Paul, actually, Paul Hester who called a band meeting and um, he just felt that it wasn't working and he wasn't mm -hmm. saying, uh, we should end this, but he was he was expressing a lot of frustration. But I think I can understand, you know, like the funny thing is that we'd done this promo tour, the four of us, um, which was like a stripped back semi-acoustic thing. And it was unbelievable. It was so good. 
Um, and we were singing all those songs for the first time on stage, you know, Chocolate Cake and Weather With You and All I Ask. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, many years later, like probably, I don't know how many years later, ooh, probably 20 maybe nearly. But I, I could be wrong about that because obviously Paul's not with us anymore. But anyway, he, he rang me up one night. Uh, I hadn't spoken for ages. And he said he'd been listening to live recordings of, of, the, of, the, of that of a show we did on that tour, a mm. semi-acoustic kind of show. And he said, mate, we were the best band in the world. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, maybe it was his way of, of, of not that there was any problem between us. In fact, when he said this isn't really working and, I, you know, I might have said, oh, well, let, let's end it, uh, I was actually feeling the frustration too and I wanted to get back to Melbourne because I'd, I'd been doing all these demos of new songs and Persuasion was one of them. And I just couldn't wait to get back to it, you know. So I didn't really want to be on tour forever. And mm. even as much as, you know, when, when I find, when I was back in Melbourne and I got the call that, that Weather With You is number seven in the UK, you know, I felt probably just as much uh, pleasure from that as if yeah. I'd been on the road schlepping it out night after night, you know, maybe yeah. more. You yeah. know, so what I love is the writing. In that period when I think of it, I think of me and Neil writing those songs, you know. Yeah. And the playing on stage was just a bit unwieldy. I mean, yeah. it was hard for me to be, to be, you know, the keyboard player. Or, you know, as, as much as I was singing a lot, I'm much better at the front, really. Mm. At, least, at least side by side, you know, mm -hmm. with Neil. Just, you know, yeah. As Finn Brothers, that works much better than it kind of did. But having said that, there were some glorious uh, shows, you know. Yeah. I have seen the Finn Brothers twice in concert. It was on the Everyone Is Here tour first night it was at the Warfield in san francisco i used to live in the bay area and um such an amazing show and then a few months later you guys came back around and you played the um fine arts center and oh, yeah. if i remember correctly i could be merging or combining other thoughts i think that was the day that paul committed suicide it, or it maybe wasn't. the day after or something no i don't think so because what happened there was that when Neil and I flew to England to play the Albert Hall shows, mm. uh, you know, um, we, we arrived in England and the next day um, we were told it had happened. Oh. Okay. So it's, it's, it's right in that, which I don't have that date for you, but it was, it was right before the Royal, the Royal Albert Hall shows. Okay. And, it was one of a very, very dark time, and we decided yeah. to go ahead with those shows. And I, I, I sometimes absolutely wonder at the fact that, that those shows happened because we came out on stage on the first of them. We'd sold out three, and it was just amazing mm -hmm. that we could, you know, we were sort of like the, from one of the highest achievements of our career to the darkness of losing Paul. Yeah. But we came out on stage that first night, and, and um, you know, the audience were in tears. Yeah. It, it was – and we just – plowed on and sang our songs. I just don't know how we did it. Yeah. And in fact, you know, yeah, it was very strange. And then got straight back on a plane. And so we were so out of our minds with grief and jet lag flying back to Australia. We, you know, there were a lot of tears and just a lot of hard, hard, hard moments. Yeah. The second time that I saw you guys in concert there in San Francisco was the 14th of February in 2005. I don't know if you remember this, the sound cut out at that show for about 30 seconds, completely wow. like someone pulled a plug and uh, you guys didn't know, but we all suddenly nothing was amplified and we were just hearing yeah. you guys in the middle of the song there on the stage. I, that's never happened yeah. before or since to me, just that one show yeah. there. Yeah. 
interesting. Um, another one of the songs that came from the second Finn Brothers album that I really liked was Homesick. Beautiful to hear that you two sing a song about being homesick too, given the family connection. And I know how close you were to your parents and everything. Was there something going on in particular that was inspiring homesick? Uh, well, I think, you know, that we both like this idea that you're homesick for the place that you're already in. Mm -hmm. And that's what we were trying to convey. It was possibly mm -hmm. a, bit, a bit of a, a mixed message song because you mm -hmm. could read it either way. Yeah. But it's kind of like, what happened to my country feeling? Yeah. What happened, or what happened to my city? Or what happened to my home? You know, mm -hmm. um, I'm, already, I'm already home, but it yeah. doesn't feel yeah. like it. You know, a little bit yeah. like that Talking Heads song, This Is Not My Beautiful yes. House. You know, it was kind of trying to get into that feeling. Um, but, yeah, that's what Interesting. Okay. Um, what about Suffer Never from the first Thin Brothers album? That song, I mean, it's it's kind of heavy, it's ominous, but yet it's also really beautiful. There's nothing else quite like it. What was, I'm imagining a song, maybe it's inspired by indigenous Aborigines or something like that. What's going on really with Suffer Never? Uh, well, no, it, it, it doesn't have anything to do with oh. um, indigenous <laughs> people. Or, I'm just projecting. Uh, yeah. Um, it's a kind of, you know, one of those mystery songs that came along and it didn't take us long to, to put it together. We had Chad Blake working with us and yeah. it was his idea to, um, to put on some, we, we slowed the tape down and played some acoustic. Uh, no, we sped it up and then mm. played some acoustic guitars. So when you brought it back down to a normal speed, they sound so thick and warm mm. and beautiful. 
and um, it's probably one of my best. It might be my best drumming effort. Ooh, yeah. uh, you know, and and you know, I was doing sort of pretty radical things, like not not like a really proper you know technically accomplished drummer would would do radical things. But my 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 way of of changing it up is just to stop. You know, maybe stop playing cymbal or leaving yeah leaving gaps and holes and then just coming plowing straight back in without a drum fill to bring you back you know any of that stuff um those sudden interruptions is but it just flows beautifully i mean it's, it's definitely a, you know one of the better ones I, oh, yeah. I think you know i've been re I, I was, it occurred to me while i've been asking about these or relaying back to my experiences of seeing you live that it they're few and far between and unfortunately I'm worried that it might stay that way. Is there a plan for you to at least tour forensics or do your own thing down there? Is there any, what would it take to get Tim Finn to come do a solo tour of the States? You know, assuming COVID isn't standing in the way. There's no plan for anything like that. I'm getting more into, you know, trying to create shows and um, making albums with, with old friends, you know, like, Mm -hmm. I can't see it. Um, the forensics thing is possible. We could do a stripped down. Me and Eddie could do a stripped down show during which we talk about the album and how those songs came about and maybe play the audience some of the original loop ideas and just bring them into the process and then show a few old videos and, yeah, just talk about split ends and talk about, I'm sorry, talk about the music. Um, that would be kind of nice, you know, and I yeah. that there is a chance that that would happen later later this year, but we're still we're still just thinking about it, you know. That's great. Oh, I hope it does. I would give anything for that. Thank you. Um, okay, we have some Patreon supporters, and I always throw it out to them who I'm interviewing, and if they want to submit some questions, they can. Uh, we had a few of them. If, if it's okay with you, I wanted to throw some of them your way, Michael. I had the same question. Michael Bagford, one of our listeners wanted to know why it's so difficult to buy split end CDs in the States. Everything, most everything is thankfully on Spotify now, although that's a bad word right now. I understand that, but at least, at least it's out there streaming. But like I went to buy the conversation on CD because I'd only ever streamed it. It was 50 bucks. I, I love you, but I don't want to spend 50 bucks on a, on a CD. So how do we get more CDs of at least split ends music out on the shelves? Uh, well, we, we're trying to work on that. It's been neglected for many years. Um, you know, labels have sold us on, sold our catalog on, and it's gone. It's moved around to different yeah. labels. And it's just a mess. And so, yeah. um, but what we're working on, there's a guy in Australia who's been helping a lot with the forensics project. Um, he's a music publisher called Philip Mortlock. And um, yeah, he he's the guy who put us together. Yeah, I think he's so, one of my right. listeners. Yeah, he, he's amazing. He's an amazing music guy. Like you know, he, so he's now taken on the Split Ends project, and it's a long term. It's going to take a few years, mm. but he's basically working his way through all the contracts, all the old deals, and trying to figure it all out. And so you know, once we've done all that kind of stuff, which is a bit boring, and but it has to happen, then we can do the fun stuff like repackaging and and recreating um, the catalog essentially. Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, in another three years, maybe there'll be, there'll be some interesting reissues and, and it'll be done very, very well. Good. I hope so. I'm ready for that. Um, okay. A couple of people, <laughs> a couple of people asked specifically about you blowing Eddie Vedder off the stage at seven worlds collide doing I see red. 
maybe you don't view it that way, but a lot of people commented on that. Did you, and one of them even mentioned, did you save Eddie Vedder from drowning? <laughs> well, I mean, my memory of that is uh, the concert is that Eddie and I are saying stuff and nonsense together. And yeah, that, it's that beautiful. Was, that, yeah, it was, it was really a successful kind of duet um, version that, you know, no one would have probably seen coming. And, you know, Eddie was going through some stuff at the time, so I think he really related to that song. Mm. And, you know, the the drowning thing was um, he wasn't drowning, but he was caught in this very powerful rip at this beach we go to called Pihar. And, you know, he was drifting. He was definitely drifting. He, he was offshore. Uh, but he, he was kind of smiling and waving. Like he was just mm. relaxing in the rip. He wasn't afraid, you know, because when you get caught, he surfs, that guy. Yeah, he he's a good. surfer. Yeah. yeah. And so he was just waiting for the rip to kind of carry him wherever it wanted to carry him. Then he would have swum back in, but the lifeguard spotted him and, and off they went and they, they, they helped him back in. And, and then the story went immediately went uh, on the, I think the, was, the, was the internet even happening then? Yeah, it probably was maybe just, and it became a news story anyway hmm. that, and then it eventually morphed into, to, you know, that I had saved his life. I mean, it was just so silly, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nice connection. Really. Yeah, yeah, we know that's hilarious. <laughs> um, okay, one of my one of my other listeners, and I can't even pronounce his name. I think it's just a bunch of gibberish. Warris, Miss Jib, something. He wanted to know, and I had a similar question too, about there are some solo Tim Finn anthologies that are out there, but fans already know a lot of that stuff. Is there any prospect of there being like a rarities collection? And I can think of one rarity in particular that I, in the early days of Napster, I jumped all over every. Tim Finn, Neil Finn, Crowded House, Split Ends, Bootleg, I could find out there. And there was one that was you, you and Neil doing Show a Little Mercy. And I think it was for an MTV Unplugged that never aired, or or that song at least never aired. It's one of the most, it's one of my favorite things you've ever done, Tim. And I'm wondering, is there, are we ever going to get some kind of compilation or anthology album of a lot of those kinds of moments of yours? Well, I mean, the problem with that would be, you know, the, the audio. I mean, I don't have the audio. Um, mm. I don't know where it would be. Uh, somebody could, you know, dig around and maybe find it. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of stuff's been lost over the years yeah. um, before before everything got digitized, you know. But, yeah, I mean, it's a nice thought. It'd be nice to come up with a list of songs and then, you know, somebody could figure it all out. I mean, mm-hmm. I'd be open to suggestions. Yeah. Maybe I'll compile that list for you, Tim. I would be honored. <laughs> uh-huh. <I> mean, <laughs> or our you know, listeners will we'll crowdsource it because we got a lot of people who care. Yeah, it's yeah. going to start somewhere. It's going to be more about who is going to do all the grunt work and, you know, find stuff. Hmm. 
Good point. You just don't have that, those recordings laying around. No, I've been really bad over the years at keeping Uh, stuff. I don't regret it, but I do think for my kids, I would have liked to have had a bit more stuff. Um, but we, you know, like we only just recently, my daughter was given, she's 18 now. She was given a, a collection of Spitins t-shirts from this woman who runs a thrift shop in Auckland. Um, and they kind of struck up this friendship. And then next minute she gives her a box and it's just like full of vintage Spitins t-shirts, you know, amazing. Oh, wow. I didn't have any, you know, I don't have that collection <laughs> in my bottom drawer, you know, so a lot yeah. of stuff's been lost. I moved house and I just didn't care. I just left everything yeah. behind, you know. Um Okay, one more from you, from Craig Eagleson, who is also an, uh, an Aussie. He remembers watching you guys on New Faces back in, what was that, 73, 72? 73. 73. He remembers watching that in real time. And uh, what an impact it made on him. And he wondered if that performance, I've been watching a lot of like split ends documentaries and to get ready to talk to you. And it's almost always brought up, but did it do what you wanted it to do? I know you didn't win the contest overall, but did it give you the exposure that you wanted and needed? Not really. I, it was just mm. a weird thing, you know, like, cause the, everybody else who was on it was like, just in a whole different universe to what we were trying to do, I guess it was, mm-hmm. you know, it was, it was just a way for us to get on television. There weren't any others unless you had a song in the charts. Um, mm. One weird thing that happened from, from that was that Kenny Rogers was in town <laughs> and he, he must've been touring with what would that have been the fifth dimension or whatever they were called? Uh, the, the yes. Yeah. In 1973, whatever he was yeah. doing in those, so he was touring New Zealand, and he saw that uh, was what, the song one two nine. He saw that, and you know you know how unusual this would mm-hmm. this is that you know because he wasn't on our radar. It wasn't like we were huge fans of his, but we mm-hmm. but he was a very big name, and he summoned or kind of asked us to come to his hotel room and talk to him because he was so kind of blown away. I mean that sort of thing is very rare, and yeah. um, you know we didn't. Um, as I say, it wasn't, you know, he wasn't like in the top 10 of, of artists that we would would want to meet, but we were still quite taken with the fact that he'd actually bothered to reach out mm-hmm. and he was trying to give us advice, you know, and, and just have a talk with us. So it was really interesting. You know, it's a funny kind of memory from that time. And I also remember when we were, Phil, Phil Judd and I were going down there in the train to, to, to be in the final because we traveled by train in those days. We were, conv- we were we thought this was our moment of destiny, our moment of glory, and we were going to win that competition. 
and become, you know, uh, instantly successful and famous in New Zealand and mm-hmm. pretty soon after that, the entire world. We, we were so full of that kind of vainglorious, youthful, impossible dream stuff. Mm-hmm. And then when afterwards, when we were, I think we just came, it was like being damned with faint praise. I think we came fifth. Uh, yeah. uh, and that was the first of many, many tough times. I mean, it, it took eight years from that point to really make true colours and actually connect with a, mm-hmm. with a, with a larger audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we were convinced in those days it was going to be very fast, very immediate, very obvious, boom, 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 you know. Yeah. I suppose a lot of young bands, you kind of have to have that insane belief to get yeah. through all, that, all the bad stuff, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, last question. And this was another one that a few different Patreon supporters asked about. I was wondering too, just as um, Time and Tide comes out and really is like the biggest moment for for Split Ends, you go off and make your first solo album. And then Split Ends becomes less of a focus for you. Were you just dying to get out of Split Ends? Maybe that's a harsh way to put it, but was it by design that that was the moment we'd finally achieved something and I can go now and go do my own thing, which I've been dying to do for a while, or are they not connected? I mean, it's it's a bit hard to sort of sum, sum it all up because, I mean, you know, Time and Tide was in a way the zenith of my kind of mm-hmm. songwriting for that band. I mean, I'd reached a sort of peak and I knew it. I mean, with a song like Dirty Creature, I knew that I'd, I'd done something Classic. that I'd been, been wanting to do for years mm-hmm. with the band. So maybe that sense of having peaked a little made me just want to, you know, almost perversely just go off in a completely different direction. I'm not sure. You know, I did have these songs lying around that I had tried with the band, like Fraction, Too Much Friction. Um, and, you know, we, we couldn't nail it. We couldn't sort of get that thing down. Mm-hmm. And playing with Ricky Fatah was just a whole different feeling. Very kind of innocent as well, that record, Escapade, you know, just a very kind of, we did it in six weeks and it just... It was a it was a joyous kind of thing working with um, singer Vanetta Fields, you know, just having fun with that, in that kind of area of music that was so different to Split Ends. It couldn't have been more different in some right. ways. Um, I guess something in me just wanted that, you know. Yeah. It wasn't well, so much. I wasn't. I just say in, in final in finishing that mm-hmm. it wasn't me so much trying to get out of Split Ends or get away from Split Ends. It was me wanting to go towards something totally different. Uh, that makes kind sense. of a difference. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, Tim, I uh, I could go for days. I if you can't tell, I I love you so much. <laughs> thank you for talking <laughs> with you. me, and thank you for consistently putting out fantastic music. Because I would say the stuff you've done in the last few years is as good or better than anything that came before it. 
we didn't even get around to talking much about split ends because I'm so excited about this new stuff that you're doing. So thank you for chatting with me and thank you for making my life better. Oh, thanks, John. Uh, that means a lot, and I really enjoyed it. Um, it's, Good. You know, it's been a it's been a memorable uh, conversation. So Good. I will say I will savor it. Good. I hope it was worth your time. All right, there you have it, Tim Finn. I I can't believe that happened. I'm so proud of this. I'm so grateful that he talked to me, and a huge thank you to our listener Philip Mortlock for putting this together. Philip, thank you for including me on this. I know Tim doesn't do a lot of interviews, and it was an honor to be able to talk to him. Now, as I mentioned, get this. So I asked Philip, can you send me a couple of uh, CDs to give away to the listeners? Well, the label sent me a box. So I have literally like 12 copies of Shapes and Echoes to give away to our Patreon supporters. So instead of, normally I throw out a trivia question, whoever asks, gets put in the running. I'm basically just going to put the uh, send these out to the first 12 or so people who tell me they want them. I'll post a question or whatever just to make sure we sift through and just the Patreon people come through. But uh, yeah, if you're one of the first 12, 13, whatever, tell, I will mail it to you. Postage is going to be a bear on this, but whatever. That's what Patreon is for, is to pay all you guys back. So thank you. Copies for just about, for a lot of you anyway. Now, um, I wanted to close it out with How Am I Gonna Sleep? This is one of his best solo songs. And again, we didn't really get to his 80s period as much as I would have liked. But we, I love this tune, and I wanted, to, I wanted to play it for everybody. I know a lot of you love this one, too, so I had to throw it in there. Shapes and Echoes is one of the best albums of the year. I hope you guys will stream it, buy it, check it out however you want to do it, because it's fantastic. Now, next week's guest, we're going a little bit different next week. Next week's guest was a very prominent singer-songwriter in the early 90s, had a couple of big hits, and then he started to sort of transition into jazz. And he's been doing jazz primarily for like 20 years now. And so maybe you know who that is. Maybe you don't. I don't know. But there's a really fascinating story there. Plus, he's a great guy with some great music. That's what's coming up next week. Huge thanks, as always, to Yan the Man Makevich, my right-hand man for everything. Thank you, buddy. I'm glad we get to do this together. Uh, you guys know how to reach us by now. You can send us a message on Facebook. You can like our page. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. All right? Uh, we will have a new episode next Tuesday. And if you're new to the podcast because of Tim, go back into the archives. You're going to find lots of other stuff you love. All right? Thanks, everybody. We love you. <laughs>